through the work of Christ, but they're never taught the present meaning of the work of Christ for them. Many Christians, this is true. I just say in my, in all I was taught in my own studies, in my own seminary courses, nobody ever taught me anything about really the present meaning of the work of Christ. I taught you how to become a Christian, but nothing of the present meaning of the work of Christ. Now, I'm convinced that many people who I think use a mistaken terminology, such as the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that really what they mean is this, that they use the wrong terminology, it's in the wrong framework, and they make mistakes theologically. But nevertheless, what they really suddenly learn is a new area of knowledge, an area of knowledge that the work of the Lord Jesus Christ means something for them in their present life. And learning that new area of knowledge and beginning to act upon it in the present life it is indeed like a new life. And many people, many people who, who know something of a real Christian life uh, come to it uh, later. It doesn't, shouldn't be this way. I think that people should be taught this before they're a Christian cause, so they can see the whole scope of what's in front of them. But very often it is. And either in their own studies or hearing somebody teach it later, suddenly they're giving a whole new area of knowledge. That is, that the work of Christ means something for them in the present life, and beginning to act upon it, suddenly the doors swing open. Now, I think it's altogether wrong to call this the baptism of the Spirit or something like this. But nevertheless, the, con the realization of a new knowledge of the meaning of the work of Christ for the present life indeed is new to many people at a point subsequent to their salvation. So therefore, the first possible area of ignorance that stands in the way of Christians knowing something of a life that's not always just down in the same old mud puddles, the first area of ignorance is that a Christian might be taught how to be justified but never taught the present meaning of the work of Christ for him. The second area of ignorance is that they might be taught concerning the becoming of a Christian through the instrumentality of faith, but left as though the Christian life then had to be lived in his own strength. This is what I've been speaking of. To say, well, you can't be saved through your own strength, but left with the idea that but after you're saved, then you're on your own. Not understanding that as the instrumentality of how to become a Christian is faith, so the instrumentality of how to live the Christian life is also faith, a believing God and the promises of God. Third, or in some antinomian way, maybe they're taught that it doesn't matter how a Christian lives. Now, antinomianism was one of the earliest heresies in the church. It was the teaching that because you're saved through faith in Christ, it really doesn't matter how you live after you're saved. And we must say this does creep in if one is not careful. Now, it does not creep in if one takes the whole biblical teaching. But nevertheless, there at times people give, give the indication that because it is true that the Bible says you're never going to be perfect in this life, you sin daily in thought, word, and deed, that really it doesn't matter very much. But the Bible says, as we have seen, it matters a great deal. The standard is perfection. The fourth area of ignorance that they may have is that they have been taught something of some kind of a second blessing. So either they wait hopelessly or they try to act upon what is not. The second blessing idea is that just as, you've, as, as you accept Christ as your Savior and you pass from death to life 
at that moment of time, so there is some kind of a second blessing uh, that tends to make you or does make you perfect. It depends who's teaching it. As I say, there is a second thing in many of our lives, and that is learning a new area of knowledge, the knowledge that the work of the Lord Jesus Christ means something for me in my present life. So there is this sense of possibly a subsequent thing to salvation, but the idea of second blessing usually is not something like this. If it was, then it wouldn't matter if by definition that's what it meant, because that is what the Bible teaches, that Christ's work does mean something to us in our present life. Then usually it has a sense connected with it of perfection, perfection in the present life. And if a person is taught this, uh, almost universally what they do is, is one of two things. Either they wait hopelessly, waiting for the fire to strike, and it never strikes them, so they just wait hopelessly and think of themselves not as Christian at all or second-class Christians. Or they try to act upon the perfection when the perfection isn't there, which is just exactly like the horrible sensation of getting in the middle of a two-week bridge and having it go down with you, if you've ever had that happen. Or there is a fifth area of ignorance. Or that they have been told that the, there is a reality of faith to be acted on consciously after justification. Now, I think this, the latter point, is the weakness of the, the second blessing thing tends to be the weakness of, of the uh, Arminian position. Uh, but the latter thing I've given you tends to be the weakness of the Calvinist position. I've seen that is a, uh, it is a process, it's not an act of emphasizing this, uh, that you're not perfect in this life, which is a good thing, the right thing to emphasize and necessary if people are not going to get despondent. And yet, at the same time, there is a danger of acting as though, after we've become a Christian, that our sanctification is merely a sovereign thing of God in the sense that we have nothing to do about it. It's just mechanical, and it just increases. And this surely misses the biblical teaching, as we have seen tonight. There is, there, there, we are to act in faith upon this, the promises of God. There is a reality of faith to be acted on consciously after we're justified. Acted on consciously. Now, it's just the same with how to become a Christian. It's perfectly true that these things indeed, in many ways, these things indeed, as the Bible stresses them, they're under the sovereign hand of God. But nevertheless, let us notice, God will never act just because he's God, just because he's sovereign, just because he's infinite. He won't act in a man's becoming a Christian, arbitrarily, without that man coming under the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if he did, he'd deny his own character. So because God is holy, he cannot accept a man, even if he is the sovereign God, unless that man comes under the shed blood of Christ, because he would deny God's own character. Now, on the other hand, he won't deal with us mechanically, because of the way he has made us, and that is rational moral creatures. So there must be the motion of faith. On one hand, on one hand because God is, is holy, he will not accept men in some arbitrary, sovereign fashion. They must come through the work of Christ, or, it deny, or he would deny his own character, his own holiness. On the other hand, he isn't going to deal with us as sticks and stones because he's made us as men. So there's the two sides to it. It must be upon the finished work of Christ and not our own strength. And on the other hand, there must be a conscious reality of faith. So faith is to be acted on consciously after we have accepted Christ as our Savior, just as in becoming a Christian. 
So now here are five areas of ignorance, and let us beware and not get caught up in any of these. But rather let us understand, let us understand that there is a present meaning of the work of Christ, that the glorified Christ, with all the value of his finished work, that there is a way to draw upon the promises of God concerning this in the present life, how it is the same thing if we are Christians here tonight that we already know in our becoming a Christian, and that is, it is by conscious faith. I am to believe God. I am to stop trying to do it myself. I am to stop calling him a liar. I am to raise the empty hands of faith and accept the gracious provisions of God based on the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, coming back to 1 John 5, 3 again, uh, through uh, uh, 3 and 4, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. For whatsoever is born of the world overcometh the world. I'm sorry. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, our faith. And not just a, a thing in a vacuum. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. Now that says here, the victory that overcometh is our faith. Now notice it, the ground isn't our faith. The ground in our sanctification is in justification is always the perfect finished work of Christ in history. That's the ground. That's the ground. But the instrument by which we lay hold of this, we're united to it in the Hebrews, uh, in the, in the Hebrews, since the Hebrews 4 passage is faith. So the Bible tells us the facts of the possibilities, but the Bible never presents these things to us as a bare intellectual concept. It tells us the facts. It can be comprehended rationally. And then God says, now believe me. You must know the facts, but after you know them, believe me. This is the way to become a Christian in the first place. This is the way to to live the Christian life. We must rest upon the facts God tells us in faith. Now then, The distinction is justification is an act. We believe God once for all. We accept Christ as Savior, and our guilt is gone. Sanctification, on the other hand, is a process. It begins when I take Christ as my Savior and continue to the day I die. And thus, for my daily walk as a Christian, I must, by God's grace, rest in faith upon my present uh, vital relationship with each of the three persons of the Trinity for every moment of my life. I must rest every moment of my life upon the reality of the, of the meaningfulness, the value of the finished work of Christ upon the cross in the past from me. It is Christ that brings forth the fruit through the agency of the Holy Spirit by faith. The Christian life is not me doing it. It is him doing it through me as I put myself in his hands. And in both justification and sanctification, I must see from God's law that I cannot do it in my own strength. And therefore, from my justification, rest in faith in Christ as my Savior, and in sanctification by God's grace in faith, moment by moment throw myself upon the fact of my present vital relationship with the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the present meaning of the work of Christ for me. The Bible says this vital relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this meaningfulness of the present work of Christ, is a fact. Now, by God's grace, through faith, I lay hold of this fact for this one moment, and that's all I have to lay hold of. We don't have to, in this place, the existentialist is right. It isn't that I have to lay hold of it for tomorrow. I lay hold of it in this one moment. And all of life is only a succession of moments, one moment at a time. Now, according to the Bible, 
this, and nothing less than this, but nothing else than this, is the Christian life. This is the Christian life. This is the Christian life. Now, before we study, finish our study of sanctification, I would like to point out to you not a complete study of the means of grace, but four areas of Christian growth. Four areas uh, wherein there is a possibility of having that, which the means of grace is a perfectly good expression here, that which helps me to grow as a Christian. Now, incidentally, if I was exhausting this, we'd have to study the sacraments here, too. But nevertheless, and their meaning here, but we have studied something in the sacraments under the unity of the covenant of grace, and I think that's the place to put them. So I am giving you not a highly technical thing here, but that which I hope will be a very practical ending to our study of sanctification. Four things that will help me grow after I become a Christian. Now let me emphasize it's after I become a Christian. This hasn't anything to do with becoming a Christian. It may, these things might help me in giving me knowledge and so on. And in this sense, and in this sense, uh, give me the knowledge I need to become a Christian. But the means of grace are basically not an idea of how to become a Christian by, uh, by doing these things, because then the means of grace becomes a work. It's I become a Christian not on the basis of my work, not on the basis of doing any things, things, but acknowledging myself to be a sinner and accepting Christ as Savior. But the Bible does set out these four things that after I become a Christian are most helpful in helping me to grow spiritually. And in 1 Peter 2.2, 2, First Peter 2.2, 2, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. And it's very plain that he's talking about the Bible here. So the first thing, if you want to grow, he's saying here, well, if you're just, if you're just a, a newborn babe in Christ and you want to grow spiritually, the first thing you do is to sufficiently take of the Word of God, the Bible. And this surely, I would say, is the central thing always to say. If a, if a person has become a Christian and they have any desire at all, and everybody ought to be ashamed, anybody ought to be ashamed of themselves not to have a desire to grow spiritually. But if we have become a Christian and we have a desire to grow, the first thing is to say, well, study your Bible. Now, there's no way to put down when you should study it. To some people, maybe to most people, it's better to study it first thing in the morning. But that isn't the point. The point isn't when you study it. <laughs> it mustn't become kind of a shibboleth like this. You've got to study in the morning or it doesn't do you any good. That isn't quite true. Uh, it's with some people it's the best time. But the point isn't when you study the Bible. The Bible, the stu- the, it isn't even a mechanical formula of how much you study it. But you're to study it. You're to study it. And in John 17, 17, we hear Jesus saying in his high priestly prayer, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Thy word is truth. God's word is truth. God's word is truth. We find an application of this in Acts uh, 17, Acts 17, 11, and the first part of 12. Acts 17, 11, and 12. And we find Paul preaching, and he comes to Berea, and it says, These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind, and searched the scriptures daily, whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed. It's a very striking thing. 
They search the scriptures daily whether these things are so. Therefore, many of them believe. And I would say to you, uh, some of you are new Christians, some of you are old Christians that need to get moving again as you've gotten kind of bogged down. We all tend to get bogged down at times. The beginning place is always the Word of God. The Bible is the Word of God. We have new doors open to us in our own studies. Somebody's teaching us. And teaching is the wonder of the, the meaning of the blood of Christ in the present life. This is true. But we only get this out of the Bible. Where does it come from? Only out of the Bible. Often, often the Bible has been pictured as the bread. And if we want some, if we want to grow physically, if we want to be strong physically, uh, we must we must eat regularly. And so it is with the study of the Word of God. And I would say I'd commend to you, after many years of my own struggles in this, do not get out of the habit of reading the Bible every day. The system you use, how much you read, when you read, these are all individual things for you to decide before the Lord. And what is good for you at one time of your life as a means of Bible study, as a type of Bible study, may not be very helpful later. Maybe you'll need something else. Even the amount of time you spend in the Bible may shift from time to time. For instance, if a person is very, very ill, they can't spend a lot of time on the Bible. Maybe they aren't up to it. But that's different from forgetting there must be some study Bible. And I would commend to you with all my heart from years of experience in this thing, in some time of which I've studied the Bible regularly, and then for a period of time I didn't study it regularly. And I just want to bear testimony to the fact that you grow anemic very quickly. And then somebody will say, but I get tired of it. I don't feel like reading it every day. I'd say, okay, that's the day to read. Of course, it should be read something better than mechanically. But if you are down in the doldrums and you're in the midst of a war and your spiritual life is low and the candle is burning weakly, it's the time to read the Bible. Don't let the day pass by without reading something of the Word of God. I commend to you reading it every day. For those of you who are Christian workers or who hope to be Christian workers, there's another factor I'd say with this. Don't read the Bible just for your messages you're going to give other people. That's what I did for several years. I thought to myself something like this. Uh, I thought it was in the middle of my ministry. And I thought, well, I'm spending a lot of time on the Bible uh, for, uh, to give these messages. And uh, I'm getting a lot out of it. And that's enough. And I found to my sorrow later it wasn't enough at all. I bogged down. I bogged down. Then I learned something else. And a number of years ago now, I learned this, and I thank God for it. And that is, there's only one way to, to read the Bible or prepare, uh, as far as basic preparation, not specific preparation for specific message, but basic preparation for really teaching people in a way that will be helpful. And that's study it first of all for yourself. There isn't any other way. It's kind of like the, it's kind of like the little mother bird who... who uh, puts the food in her own mouth and masticates it a while and then gives it to the little bird. There isn't any other way to get this done. And that's my experience. And don't you make my mistake because it, it was a poor mistake. So therefore, now I see it a different way. I read the Bible not for the messages I can give to other people, not basically, though when I'm preparing a message I have that in mind, but basically I read it for myself, for knowledge and for what it means to me in practice. And then out of this well, of that which has uh, been made real for myself I let the teaching flow and that's been the way it has been for a long time now. and I'm just thankful then I'm fed first then I can really teach people in a way that isn't just something that is a pure mechanical situation because it's just like John where he says we have an advocate with the Father 
no matter how far we get, it's we must say together, we have these needs. We have these needs. Consequently, the first means of grace I would urge upon you with all my soul, and I mean this, really, is to read the Bible every day. To read the Bible every day. And uh, I'll tell you something for myself. Occasionally, of course, I get pushed where I don't get it done. I just don't get it done. Especially when I'm traveling, when I'm up to my ears in lecturing. Then what do I do? Well, I read it the next day, for that day. Maybe that won't help you, but it helps me. So I never get behind. I always keep up. If I if I don't make it the one day, I read it the next. And then I read the, the next days too. And this way I keep up. And I find this a blessing. I find this, I sort of keep my accounts close with God, as it were. I would feel like a robber, as it is now. I wouldn't have before. It doesn't just become legal with me at all, but I'd feel like a robber to God if I didn't feed uh, over a period of days uh, on his word in, in an established kind, of a, established kind of a way. So the first means of grace I would urge upon you with all my heart is a regular study of the word of God. How much? That really isn't the point. That's between you and God. How? That isn't the point either. That's between you and God, though maybe somebody can help you. But the point is to read it, to read it. In the 20th chapter of Acts and verse 32, And now, brethren, I give you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. This is a very beautiful statement. And here's Paul T. speaking uh, to these people he's saying goodbye to, and he's commending them. He's saying goodbye to them, and he never expects to see them again. As far as we know, he never did see them again. And he's giving him his warmest words in love as he's parting from them. And this is a tremendous verse. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, and I think that's his teaching in the scriptures, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them that are sanctified. Do you want to grow in grace? Do you want to be sanctified? Well, then, feed regularly on the word of God. Same thing is true in Ephesians 5.26. Ephesians 5.26. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. And that's the church. And it's the word that God means to be the instrument. It's the word not in some mystical sense. You don't read it for an existential experience. You read it for knowledge. You read it for knowledge. And through this knowledge, including the, then the whole man, communion with God so the first means of grace and I put it first very strongly is the regular reading of the word of God the regular reading of the word of God the second means of grace is prayer now we shouldn't pray basically just because it is a means of grace but never we should pray because God calls us to communion with himself but then it is a means of grace it is a means of grace. So in Philippians 4, 6, Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known unto God. Of course, in the New Testament, the call to prayer is our, our legion. The call to prayer are legion. But the Bible makes a very strong point, and that is the Christian a Christian is to pray. Now, we've said we are, it isn't just theoretical. We, once we've accepted Christ as our Savior, we are to be in communion with God. Well, the, in the reading of the Bible, God speaks to me. In my, he might speak to me other ways too, incidentally. But in my reading of my Bible, in a very special way, God speaks to me. But in my prayer life, I talk to him. 
And what kind of communion can you have if you don't have communication? The answer is none. It has to be communication somehow or other in a person-to-person relationship. And that's true with prayer. In second, in First Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. And I would suggest in thinking of prayer as a practical thing that there, we should cultivate the habit of two types of prayer. The first is special times of prayer. Special times of prayer. This could be morning and evening prayer. It could be grace at meals. It could be longer periods of prayer. It could be what the older saints spoke of as the prayer closet. Times when we cultivate times of prayer. Again, we must understand it's not going to be the same for any person. When it is isn't the important thing, and it might change in times of your life. Also, it isn't the amount of time, but there is to be but there should be special times of prayer. And then the second type of prayer is the is the praying constantly as we go about our daily tasks. And, and in a way, this is the most wonderful, that we can just talk to the Lord at any time. We can talk to him any time. Whether we're caught in a great crowd in one of the great cities, or whether we're alone in the mountains, or whether we're troubled or whether we're joyous, we can speak to the Lord. And to cultivate a, a running, a running uh, prayer life with the Lord. And sometimes you get so bogged down that you just say, Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. I remember Machen, Dr. Machen used to say, sometimes the child of God is so burdened that he can just say, Father. And that's absolutely true. Any of us, I think, who have had any real spiritual struggles have felt this. We've come to a place where you just say, Jesus, what do I do? Oh, Father. But I, I think what we must see, that the, these are, these, both of these are important. And usually if we let the 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 definite times of prayer lapse. The other will slip through our fingers. Usually. But not always. But usually. So. But anyway, surely, regardless of how you work this out in your own life, we can say this. We are to pray without ceasing because God says so. So now two means of grace. The reading of the word of God and your prayer life. The third means of grace, I would say, is witnessing to others. Now you must be careful here. We have these. We have those at Labry who have been have felt beaten by the present activistic of, uh, uh, evangelical viewpoint. The idea that now you're saved, roll up your sleeves and get to work. And this is certainly the wrong direction entirely. And the it isn't it isn't now you're saved, grab a handful of tracks and get out there. This is not the way the scripture gives it. These things are to flow out of ourselves as we look to the Lord for his leading. But nevertheless, this being so, all the Christians in the world that are indwelt by the Holy Spirit are called upon to share some way in witnessing for Christ. And in Acts 1, the 8th verse we read, But ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. Now, if you examine what happened immediately after this at Pentecost, it wasn't just the hierarchy or the preachers or the something like this uh, uh, that suddenly had the Holy Spirit. It was everybody who was there. And so it is with us that after we have accepted Christ as our Savior, we are immediately indwelt by the Holy Spirit, as we have seen. And as wide as the giving of the Holy Spirit, so wide is the call to be witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. 
Now, there are special gifts. There are different gifts in the church. So everybody doesn't have the same gift. Everybody doesn't have the same calling. Not everybody's called to be a pastor. Not everybody's called to be a missionary. Not everybody's called to be a speaker, for example. But we must see that our gifts, are, certainly our gifts will be of such a nature in the Holy Spirit that we will have part, we will have part in the whole church in the call to the witnessing. And I think most of us can bear word, a word of testimony at this point that it is, a, it is a means of grace to begin to speak to others. Each in our own way, not feeling pressure, not feeling a mechanical thing, not just doing it because it's a social pressure and the thing to do. Not doing it, uh, not doing it as, a, as a, a, a compulsion in a bad sense, sort of a neurotic compulsion or a social compulsion, but doing it because it's right and doing it because we love those who are lost looking to the Holy Spirit for his leading, and looking to my own gifts to see my own part in it, to have something, something to, some way to witness into a lost world. And I think most of us will bear word that, that as we begin to take our place in the witnessing church, according to our calling, uh, there'll be a blessing to us, and we can find a strengthening. And I certainly can say this. I certainly can say that one thing that has a tremendous help to me in my own personal spiritual life is being able to speak to other people about the Lord either for their salvation or the beauty of our Lord to meet their needs. Now, I would, I would balance this. I would say don't just feel then it's, uh, don't be activistic in this. That isn't, that'll take you away from the Lord because that'll make, cause you to do it merely because of a social pressure, something like this. I'm not talking about that. Quietly, according to the gifts of the Holy Spirit, looking to the Lord for his leading, and yet in that setting, speaking to others for salvation and about the, the meaning of, uh, of Christ to us as Christians is, will certainly be a blessing in your own lives. So now we've had lay down three things. The first is your Bible reading. Your second is your prayer life. And your third is taking your place in the witnessing church after you're saved. And the fourth is a, a regular fellowship with the people of God. A regular fellowship with the people of God. And this would include uh, the proper taking of the sacraments, not a mechanical sort of thing, but the proper taking of the sacraments. But rather than put our thought upon that, I would put my emphasis upon regular attendance, regular fellowship with the people of God. And in Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, and let us consider one another to provoke one to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Now the day here is the day of the coming of the Lord Jesus, and so it's carefully laid down. We're never going to get beyond this in this era in which we live. And I would want to say here, I usually don't say a lot about my own experiences. I'd rather teach objectively. But here I'm doing it because I think it would be helpful. And I would say, um, I would hate to have to live the Christian life completely separated from all Christians. I'd find that just plain hard going. Now then, if you're in China, or if you're in the communist land, or if dictatorship comes uh, in our own countries, and we're forcibly separated from God's people and put in solitary confinement, then you don't have to worry. You don't have to worry. God will help you there. But most of us aren't in that situation. If we are completely abstracted from the people of God, it's only because it's by our choice, not because somebody's put us in a big place with a high wall around it. 
And that's different. That's different. We can't expect we can't expect a God deal a God to deal with us directly, as as it were a special dispensation to us of His grace, if we are in this poor choice against His commandments. Now, however, having emphasized that we should meet together with the people of God, I would emphasize that it's the people of God I'm talking about. It's not just a church. There's no virtue in going to, quote, a church. Just as to the Jews, in the, uh, there was no virtue in going in the, to, quote, a synagogue. Because the Bible makes very plain there's such a thing as a synagogue of Satan. And there's such a thing as a church of Satan, too, unhappily. And this may sound like a hard word, and especially jarring in the area, uh, era of ecumenical syncretism. But nevertheless, it is a true word. It isn't that just anything that takes on the, on the structure of a church or anything that once was a true church. That isn't what we're talking about. We're talking about really the people of God. Now, that doesn't mean that you'll find a perfect church. If you wait to find a perfect church, you'll wait forever. Just as if you aren't married and you wait to find a, person, a perfect person to marry, uh, you'll never get married. And if that was the standard, then even if you found one, they'd never marry you, surely, because we're not perfect. So consequently, uh, we must understand we're not talking about perfect churches, but there's a difference between a perfect church and a church which is unfaithful. That isn't the same. And in our Westminster Confession, there's an emphasis upon true churches and false churches. And then within the circle of true churches, the church is more or less pure. So when we go someplace, we're not going to find a perfect situation ever. And we might not find a group, really, which conforms to what we think is best in a number of ways. But, if it's a, but we should have fellowship. We should have regular, regular fellowship with the people of God. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. So consequently, as we studied under the Brotherhood of Believers, it's a very important thing to, to understand that it doesn't mean any old church, any old group, anything that just happens to meet in a Gothic building and plays Bach on the organ, for example, uh, but, or anything that just happens to recite the Apostles' Creed at the beginning of the service. But as far as you're able to find a true assembly, a true people of God, a true church, and uh, worship with these people. Find this group that is true to the Bible in the great essential truths and the Word of God. And, of course, then in such a setting, there is the privilege of regularly taking the Lord's Supper. In Acts 2, 46 and 47, it's made very plain that this was the way, this was the normal thing from the beginning of the church after the day of Pentecost, beginning of the, the New Testament church. 2, 46 and 47. And they continued daring with one accord in the temple and breaking of bread from house to house to eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as were being saved. Incidentally, it should be were being saved and not should be saved. But that isn't the point here. The point is here that they did have fellowship together. They did have fellowship together. In the breaking of the bread, in the private, in the public worship, in the relationships, and so consequently, if you really want to grow spiritually, uh, don't forsake the assembling of yourself with a true group of of God's people. So, therefore, these are what I would suggest to you, not as an exhaustive study, but one that, as I hope, is not theoretical, but quite, but I meant it to be very practical 
four things which are helpful uh, in the in growing spiritually: a daily, regular, conscientious consideration, study of the Word of God, and study. I mean study, not just a mechanical study without a spiritual longing. But neither just reading is sort of as a spiritual exercise without study. Two should go together. A life of prayer. Special times of prayer. And then praying constantly as we go about our our tasks. Thirdly, taking our place according to our own gifts and calling and in the proper way in the power of the Spirit in witnessing to the lost world. And fourthly, having regular fellowship with the people of God. Now, this ends this part of our study of sanctification, and it is wonderful to know we've been justified. It's wonderful as we sit here if we can say, I know I'm a child of God. It's wonderful to know that if I died tonight, I would be in heaven. All that's wonderful. But our present desire should be to glorify the triune God in our bodies while we're still here in our bodies. And because we love the Father, because we love the Son, and because we love the Holy Spirit. Now that ends our study of sanctification uh, in these studies of doctrine. But I would point out to you on this tape that the next of these studies, the first being the introductory Roman studies, the second being these doctrinal studies, the third is the study of the Christian life or true spirituality. And so what I've given you in these sermons, or I beg your pardon, in these studies on sanctification is really just an introduction. It's really just an introduction. And after this, we will go on now to eschatology in these doctrinal studies. But but really, if one was going to study in the order of, uh, of the content, one would then go to the next in this series, the study of the Christian life or true spirituality. So it goes like this. In these doctrinal studies, we begin at the beginning, and we've gone right through the doctrinal framework up to sanctification. Now I've given you an introduction. Then the next thing is an, an, um, uh, very much an enlarged thing of this, uh, of the meaning of the Christian life, which will be uh, the third in this general series, the first being the study of Romans, the second being the doctrines, the third being this. Then we go on to eschatology. Now, I would just read to you the, the, the next study, the outline of the next study, so you can uh, have it in mind uh, before you go on with these doctrinal studies. And we call it the Christian life for true spirituality. And these were based on a series, on a series of sermons uh, preached here in Weymouth. And sermons one through seven, sermons one through seven covered the, the consideration of freedom in the present life from the bonds of sin. Freedom in the present life from the bonds of sin. And there's four headings under that. One, the introduction, which is Sermon 1. Two, basic considerations of the Christian life for true spirituality. That's Sermons 2 through 4. 2 through 4. Third, the basic considerations in the light of the unity of biblical teaching. Sermons 5 through 6. And four, moment-by-moment practice of the Christian life for true spirituality. That's Sermon 7. Now, that comes under the first heading, freedom in the present life from the bonds of sin. The second heading in sermons to the end of this study 
is freedom in the present life from the results of the bonds of sin, or wider considerations of the Christian life. In other words, the first really deals with what we've pretty much covered so far, sanctification in its simplest sense, of something of not just running on the ice, always falling into the same hole, but there being a real sense of freedom in the present life from the bonds of sin. The second, second area, however, enlarges this, because the Bible is really a very, very, is, is rich in what it teaches us, and we must not be poor. So the second section is freedom in the present life from the results of the bonds of sin, or wider considerations of the Christian life. Because we must remember that when we are caught in the bonds of sin, it isn't just wrong, but it's bringing certain practical results. Now, the second section, freedom in the present life from the results of the bond of sin, is divided into two parts. A, true spirituality in relationship or in relation to my separation from myself. The fact that as, uh, as man has sinned, he is separated from himself. As I sin, it not only is wrong, but it hurts me myself in my relationship to myself. So number five, you see, just carried on through the first section, one, two, three, four. Number five is freedom from my conscience. That was Sermon 8. My thought life, Sermon 9. Seven, the Christian life in relation to psychological problems, Sermons 10 through 12. That is the problem of my separation from myself in my thought life. The second half of this second section of freedom in the present life results of the bonds of sin or wider consideration of the Christian life is true spirituality in relation to my separation from my fellow men. So the first half of this second section deals with the separation from myself, the, se- the area of psychology. The second section, the area of sociology, as it were, my separation from my fellow men. Number eight, now we just run right through one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Now number eight. Love. Now we just run right through one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Now number eight. Love and communi- love and communication, the centrality of personal relationships within the proper legal. And that's sermons thirteen and fourteen, and then finally the church, sermons fifteen to the end. Now that should fit right exactly at this place. So don't think that we have exhausted the wealth and the beauty of what the Bible has to tell us about the Christian life in these few very, these introductory studies we've had here in the doctrinal studies. And I trust that after you're done this series of doctrines, you'll just go on and go on to the next study, the next series of, of studies, uh, these on the Christian life. Now, however, in this series of doctrine, at this particular time, we consider our study of sanctification as closed. Now, remember... Remember where we are in our total study, because we want to go straight on. Where we are in our total study runs like this. So far, we have had four headings, and we're getting on in the fourth. The first heading, the first heading, uh, was uh, of the Holy Scripture. The second heading was God. That the Bible teaches about God. Under the and then the decrees of God. The third heading, so it's of Holy Scripture and then God, and the third heading is God and man. God's dealing with man. God's dealing with man. And in that we have considered the covenant of works, the fall, the covenant of grace, and the unity of the covenant, and Christ the mediator.
Then the fourth section is on salvation, the fourth big section. So the first is of Holy Scripture, the second of God, the third of God and man, God's dealing with man, and fourth is salvation. And under salvation, we had a, trans, uh, a study of, in transition, and then we have studied our past aspect of salvation, which is our justification, the removal of our guilt, and then our present salvation. And under the present salvation, we studied our new relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and the brotherhood of believers. Secondly, we studied... Thirdly, we have studied repentance. And fourthly, this introductory study of sanctification. Now, all of that is under the present aspect of salvation. The past aspect of salvation is our justification. These things we have just finished are our present aspect of salvation. Now we go on to our future aspect of salvation. That is, if I have accepted Christ as my Savior. If I haven't accepted Christ as my Savior, there's no future aspect of salvation to me until I do. But if I have accepted Christ as my Savior, just as there is a past aspect of justification, a present aspect in this whole wide area of present relationship with God and sanctification, so there is a future aspect of salvation. And the future aspect of salvation is glorification as a theological term, and it falls into two parts. The first part is my glorification of death, and the second part is my glorification at the resurrection. So you see, it is a complete fabric. If I have accepted Christ as my Savior, my guilt is gone in the past. There is a present aspect of salvation in my communication with uh, in my relationship with the Trinity now, and in this whole area we have considered an introduction only, but we have considered in sanctification. But there is a future aspect of salvation. It isn't finished when I die. In a way, this is just the beginning. So there's a future aspect of salvation. The future aspect of salvation, my glorification, is at death and then at the coming of Jesus Christ, the second coming of Christ in history, and my, glorific and my glorification and my resurrection. And then I will just say past that, we will study a little bit of eschatology as an introduction to a, a future study uh, further on uh, in another series. But now the next where we are then is our future aspect of salvation. Our glorification, first at death, and secondly, at the second coming of Christ and the resurrection. Now, we'll just begin it, because we have some time yet before the two hours over. We'll just give us an introduction. So, we're finished now. The present aspect of salvation. We look to the future. Now, following the mentality presented in the book of Romans. In what Paul presents in the first eight chapters of the book of Romans, I would say to you sitting here, well, I assume now. It may not be true with all of you. That's between you and God or those listening on the tape. But I assume you've heard the way of salvation in our study. I've assumed you've accepted Christ as your Savior. So if you have, your guilt is gone. Isn't that wonderful? I assume that you've heard the way of salvation and you've accepted Christ as your Savior. Therefore, you know something of our riches at the present life. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't it beautiful? But we still realize that there's something yet ahead of us. Things aren't perfect. As we've said, we're not perfect in this life. So we wait for something. Paul in Romans, Romans 8 can speak of groaning, waiting, looking forward to something. So there is a future aspect of salvation 
there is a future aspect to salvation which is very definitely completes completes the uh, the teaching of the of our riches on the basis of the finished work of Christ Jesus. And this is very important. It isn't. You must see that it isn't just a theoretical thing. It's very necessary in the whole in the whole structure of the world as it is. What would life mean if it ended at death? What would the world be if it ended? If all men's life ended at death, it would be an incomplete thing. Be totally incomplete. And so, consequently, the the teaching of the Bible of what happens when I die. And what happens when Jesus comes back again? It's not just a, a little extraneous doctrine, like a pimple on an elephant or something, that's stuck on here. It's something very different. It is, it is needed in the entire fabric of what is. Now I read to you from the Confession uh, in the chapter 30. Chapter 30, the first section. Of the state of man after death and of the resurrection of the dead. And this is just the first section I'll read. The bodies of men, after death, return to dust and see corruption. But their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal substance, immediately return to God who gave them. The souls of the righteous, being then made perfect in holiness, are received into the highest heavens, where they behold the face of God in light and glory waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. And the souls of the wicked are cast into hell. But why they use hell, I don't know. Surely they mean Hades. The souls of the wicked are cast into Hades. I'll read it this way because it is certainly the biblical thing. Where they remain in torments and under darkness, reserved to the judgment of the great day. Besides these two places for souls separated from their bodies, the scripture acknowledgeth none. Now, we might differ with some words here, but the thought is certainly the thing. In this last, in the scripture, in this last phrase, beside these two places for souls separated from their bodies, the scripture acknowledges none. Of course, they're here denying the Roman Catholic purgatory. Because the Roman Catholic purgatory says that after a man dies, he is uh, almost all men, only those who are technically called saints by them excluded, their bodies must go into purgatory where they have to suffer, suffer, and on the basis of meriting the merit of Christ and their suffering, finally they're ready to get out of purgatory and, and escape. Uh, but uh, quite properly here, it emphasizes this isn't so. They're just two places. There's just two places. The place of, of heaven uh, for those who have accepted Christ as Savior, uh, and on the other hand, the place of the lost for those who haven't accepted Christ as Savior. Now, there's one thing in this that's very beautiful, uh, and this is um, this emphasis um, on the um, on the bodies. It seems to me this is a, especially a, a beautiful thing, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. And uh, this is emphasized in the Catechism. Now then, what you have, therefore, is a, a double division. A division, and then this is the scriptural division. A division between the saved and the lost. A division immediately at death, which goes on forever. And secondly, when a Christian dies, or an unsaved man, a division between the soul and the body. Now, the Bible makes very plain 
that the result of sin is division in, on every level. The first great division when man sinned was the division of man from God. But all these other divisions then are the result of this one. And among these other, and we've, in our true spirituality or the Christian series, we'll consider much uh, about uh, our division from ourselves and our division from other men. But one division that the Bible emphasizes, which is the result also of, uh, of the primary division of, a ma of man from God when he is revolted, is the division of a man and his body uh, in the present life and then especially at death. Because the Bible makes very plain there's some very real ways in which we are separated from our bodies now. There's no longer the unity between our, ourselves and our body that uh, should have been there. For example... Uh, when God speaks to Eve and speaks of her, her pain in conception of children and multiple conception, having more children than otherwise would be the case. This is something that's gone wrong with the body. The interrelationship of the total is not what it should have been. And finally, this comes to the climax of physical death. Of physical death. And physical death is pictured as an enemy. It's pictured an enemy because it's abnormal. It's the tearing apart of the unity of the individual. And in this, this would be a good place to stress the fact that the Bible's emphasis is upon the unity of the individual. We can speak of the body and soul, and this has real meaning because the body, if you've ever seen someone die, the locomotion stops. There's a mystery of death. I don't know how many people you've seen die. But if you've seen people die, there's a total mystery of death. And you never get past this mystery. It's a funny thing to watch, to watch a man die. I don't mean funny, of course. It's a curious word to use. I don't mean funny, really. It's a poor word, but a curious thing to watch a man die. It's a mystery. And uh, here in this room one time, we had an English doctor, uh, a lovely girl. Some of you would know her, have heard of her. Some of you may have met her, and some more of you will meet her probably. Uh, but a lovely English doctor, not a Christian. And uh, uh, she had gone through a siege of polio so that she couldn't operate anymore. And uh, she had been doing head operations as a very young doctor. She's very clever. And uh, she was in the midst of the struggle, and she wasn't a Christian, and she was rejecting him. And sitting here in this room on this couch over here on my left, I'll never forget, she sat, and uh, she, was, she was so caught up in this thing that she was, she was crying. And then all of a sudden she said to me, well, I'll admit one thing, and that is, I've watched many people die, and when death comes, something's gone. And this was my point of contact with her, which led rather rapidly to her acceptance of Christ as Savior. And I must say this is right, that when there's, a, there's something terrific about physical death, because suddenly all that which is locomotion, all that which is rational, all that which is intelligent, comes suddenly to a point of just stopping. It's very amazing. Now, the Bible says this is quite abnormal. It is perfectly true that the soul lives on. The soul doesn't die. And there's a conscious life to the soul uh, after its separation from the body. <clears throat> but though this is true, the man is a unit, and the man includes the soul and the body. So it's abnormal for the soul to be separated from the body. It's the same way we must be careful. We talk about uh, the intellectual, uh, the will, the emotions. This is a perfectly good way to talk, and it's meaningful. And yet we must be very careful. The real concept is, is a unit. Man is a, man is a unit. Man wasn't made to be divided all up into all kinds of, uh, of parts. The, the parts are there, but man is a unity. 
Man is a unity. There is such a thing as a personality. There is such a thing as man. There is such a thing as Francis Schaeffer. Now then, modern man doesn't know anything about all this in a very real way. Modern man is lost uh, in regard to man. Biblical emphasis is upon the biblical emphasis is upon the unity of man. There is the unity of the Francis Schaeffer, whatever your name is. Uh, and when man dies, when man dies, this unity is disrupted because we aren't. We don't have a Greek idea of the soul. You see, the biblical idea isn't a Greek idea of the soul. It isn't just that the soul is the important thing and it's encased in an old hunk of junk. That isn't the way the Bible pictures a man and his soul. The body's important. The body's a part of the man. The body isn't to be made the master of the soul, but the body isn't to be just considered as junk. So therefore, if you're going to have the man, there is the body and the soul. Consequently, when death comes... When death comes, there is an, a disruption. There's an abnormality here. There is something that's shattered. And happily, of course, uh, in considering glorification, it doesn't end just with death. But we wait for the coming of the Lord Jesus and the redemption, the adoption of our bodies. So we must see, coming to the biblical view of death, um, biblical death, this is, there's a shattering here. This is a result. This is a result of the fall of man. The individual is shattered at this place. And happily, there is the resurrection. So there's a double division here. There's a double division. The first division is between the soul and the lost. Something happens at death, and never again are they in in the same framework or or the same strata, as it were. The soul of the believer goes to be with Christ, as we shall see. The soul of the lost man goes to the place of Hades, and that's it. Later, the unsaved man is raised from the dead, just as the saved man. But the the division is at death. The division is at death in the biblical place. On the other hand, the second type of division is is not is not between the saved and the lost. But all men die uh, at physical death, and when they die at physical death, the body and the soul are separated. Now, in the Longer Catechism, uh, 86, Longer Catechism, 86, the communion, or what is the communion in glory with Christ, which the members of the invisible church enjoy immediately after death? It's very beautiful. These people really know how to write English, I'd point out. Number 86, what, what is the communion in glory with Christ, which the members of the invisible church enjoy immediately after death? The invisible church, meaning those truly saved, of course. The communion in glory with Christ, which the members of the invisible church enjoy immediately after death, is that their souls are then made perfect in holiness and received into the highest heavens, where they behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies, which even in death continue united in Christ and rest in their graves as in their beds till the last day till at the last day they be again united to their souls, whereas the souls of the wicked are at their death cast into hell, says again, but Hades, where they remain in torments and utter darkness, and their bodies kept in their graves as in their prisons until the resurrection and judgment of the great day. It's both beautiful and terrifying, surely. And this is the scriptural picture. We live in a supernatural world. Life isn't finished. Life isn't finished at death. Life is not finished at death. There is a straight horizontal line 
according to Scripture, from this life onward. Now there is this little phrase here that I offer to you as indeed beautiful and cause for thanksgiving. Waiting for the full redemption of their bodies, which even in death continue united in Christ and rest in their graves as in their beds. That's very beautiful. So in other words, when the Bible speaks of being asleep in Jesus, it's not talking about the soul, it's talking about the body. And indeed, the body rests in Jesus Christ. The body waits for the resurrection day. And in the shorter catechism, it's the longer, in, in the shorter catechism, 37, very sharply brought together here, very tight little statement, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? And remember, notice how this is worded? Receive from Christ at death. In other words, this is still part of our salvation based on the finished work of Christ. He purchased all this for us back on Calvary's cross. The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. And their bodies, being still united to Christ, do rest in the grave till the resurrection. Now, I would just end with the fact that it isn't the thought of a life after death isn't just a luxury. But it's needed if we're to live in a reasonable world. And if, if life ended at death, if human life ended at death, the present life would be a meaningless thing. And that's for two reasons, I would suggest. And the first of these is the imperfect, imperfectness of this life. One time when I was a young man, and I can't remember any longer whether it was just before I became a Christian or just after I became a Christian, I was down at, at the seashore in the United States. And I always loved to be alone on the beach at night, always have. And I did then. And I was standing on the beach at night with nobody around me in total silence. It's as though I was alone on the planet. And suddenly the moon rose. And it rose in all uh, its copper splendor. And as is so often the case, just at the rising of the moon, you can see it as a globe and not just as a, a plate-like light, as is later, later in the night usually. So often later in the night, it's just like it, it lacks depth. But in the rising of the moon, one feels the movement of the spheres, I would say. And standing by the sea, there was this a tremendous light from the moon, just as a road clear of the horizon across the sea to my own feet. This copper beautiful light. And in this light, I could see, indeed, the movement of the spheres. The moon was round, and I could see the curvature of the earth. And all of a sudden, it was, I just had a tremendous um, emotional and mystical experience standing there. And as I watched it, I remember my heart just exalted. For I thought to myself, isn't this tremendous? Look at the size of these look at the size of these globes. And watch them turn. See them see the turning of the earth and the beauty of this light. But with all their power and with all their wonder, there is something I have that they don't have, because I can contemplate them and they cannot contemplate me that the beauty, the beauty that I, I am confronted with here is, is mine to, to digest 
and they can digest nothing. And I, I just exalted with life at that. And then all of a sudden, as though I had been just suddenly had all the ocean and the very cold one dumped on top of my head, the whole Arctic Ocean, I suddenly thought, yes, but they've been turning before you've been here, and they'll continue to turn when you're here no longer to see them. And in a real sensitivity at that time, I really passed through in a certain number of moments really a horror of great darkness. It was one of the tremendous experiences in my life. Now then, if this is all there were to life between birth and death, it would, it would carry with it its own tastelessness and its own destruction. Because as I am sensitive... And I really consider that the beauty will continue, the beauty of the moon rising across the water or the beauty of these trails in the Alps that I love so well, that they continue after I'm gone and I no longer can appreciate them and it all falls away as far as I'm concerned and it still goes on, but I am left without contact with it. If this is all there is, life is destructive to me. I think the only way people ever manage to really live with any degree of, of the playing of the flute, as it were, is to just shut this away from their mind, either because they're crass and never feel it, and many people don't feel very much, or because having the potentialities of sensibility, they turn it off the way one pulls down a window blind. So consequently, the concept of a life after death is, is not just a luxury, or to be conceived as a doctrine. But if there wasn't a fulfillment after this life, the present life would take on the aspects of zero. And, of course, many of the writers and many of the artists have wrestled with this and come to this conclusion. So, the, in thinking of the doctrine of our salvation in Christ after death, our glorification at death and then the resurrection, you mustn't think of it as an absolute doctrine especially of all times, not in the 20th century, please. But realize, realize that the very factor of time, I don't want to spend too long on this, and our time is almost up for tonight, but the very factor of time would be a crushing burden if there was no, no eternity to walk into. And this is, I'm convinced, the more I've wrestled with this problem, the more I'm sure that the very ticking of the clock, the very fact of change, the very fact of age, the very fact of all these things could only lead to a horror of great doctrine if there wasn't something beyond the scope between birth and death that would provide a possible fulfillment for the longings all men have for that which is beyond the ticking of the clock in this present life. I don't know if I've made myself plain or not. I hope so. The Christian doctrine of the afterlife, the conscious continuity of personality, not just lost in a pan-everythingism, but the conscious, the continuation of a conscious life of the rational person and as a total personality, a fulfillment beyond the ticking of the clock that comes between birth and death, if that was not there, this present life would suddenly be would be crushing. And the most sensitive people almost universally have felt that crushness. 
The second thing that is absolutely needed in the that which is beyond this life is that if there is going to be, if this is a moral universe, now the, what I just gave you is what I would call meaning, the meaning of life. The secondly is a problem of a moral universe. And if the, if the, all there is to life is this life from birth to death, then we must say flatly we live in a totally amoral, if not immoral, universe. Because the simple fact is, in the area of morals, the books are not balanced in this present life. They're just not. They're just not. If the whole moral structure that there is is what we know from birth to death, then we must say flatly and just take a deep sigh, well, we live in a, an amoral universe. We live in an amoral universe. And Paul stresses this in first in second Thessalonians one four two through ten. I'll mention this and then this is read this and then this ends the study for tonight. Second Thessalonians one four through ten is exactly what Paul says about this problem of the balancing of the books in a moral in a moral thing. Second Thessalonians four So that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure. This is the present tense. The church at Salonica was in hard persecution under Nero at this particular time. Families were being divided. Fathers dragged off. Children dragged off. They were being persecuted. They were being killed. What kind of a moral universe is this where the people of God are torn torn to bits by the in persecution and there is no judgment and obviously it isn't a moral universe if that's all there is but what does Paul say which is that is this persecution the situation I guess you better say which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which ye also suffer seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you and to you who are troubled, rest with us. And this us is a very wonderful thing again. There isn't any rest in this world. The Bible never holds out a total balancing of the books morally in the present life from birth to death. It just never does. Paul says, I don't expect the balancing of the books in for me. I'm looking for a different kind of rest. I'm looking for the rest when? When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. And the Greek is the angels of his power. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. In that day. So what Paul is simply saying is this. You look at the universe, whether it's a situation in Salonika, whether it's a universe in general, and if you really look and don't put on blinders, you have to come to this conclusion, that looking at between birth and death, we live in an amoral universe. The books are not balanced. Now you can read this in one of two ways. You can read it, that's all there is. It's just an amoral universe and just face it, fella, because that's all. Or you can read it the other way, 
which is the way the Bible presents it, and what Paul says to the church at Salonica. Because there is a God and a holy God, and because, therefore, we do live in a moral universe, insofar as the books are not balanced in this life, it is a total proof that there will be a judgment in the next. Now, you can read it either way, but there's no third way to read it. Only children and fools could find a third way. I just say that flatly. It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. For the sake of the, of the moral universe, if we do not live in an amoral, yes, immoral universe, even without standards, a horrible, stinking universe in many ways, there must be a balancing the books in the beyond, beyond this life. So consequently, consequently, for the sake of meaning in this life, rather than a horror of great darkness, for the sake of time not being something crushing in the area of meaning, and secondly, in the area of morals, there must be more than this present life, or the present life takes on just one huge gray shade. Now, with this, there is the, just one other factor, and that is the testimony in the instinct of the race. And that is you don't find people through the ages who don't have some sense of this very factor, of the meaningfulness of life carried on, of morality to be understood to be true morality simply because in the instinct of the race, almost universal, there is a concept of the life after death and of judgment. And this is almost everywhere you turn in history. Now, therefore, in this setting, in this setting, uh, we don't want to think of the study of the life after death as just an abstraction or just doctrinal orthodoxy. But if there is no life after death, if there is no continuing of, uh, of meaningfulness, if there is no balancing of the books, then we can say, woe to us. Woe to us. As Solomon says it so strongly, under the sun, that is between birth and death, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So it isn't just for the future, but for the present, that we should say, thank God. Thank God that it doesn't end. There is a continuation. And there is a meaning in the death of Christ, not only for the past, not only for the present, but for the future and the total future. First of all, in the glorification of death, and then carrying on into the glorification of the individual at the resurrection of the dead. Now this concludes our 28th study, uh, 28th study, yes, in, the, uh, in these doctrinal studies.